The following sermon by our guest speaker is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. All right, well, I have chosen a subject that would keep me from having to review any books or attack anyone's theology or whatever. I want to go to Scripture, and I want to look at, at some incidents in the Gospels. Tonight we're going to look at Mark chapter 9, so if you want to be turning there. I chose three vignettes from the ministry of Christ where He's dealing with people who are struggling with that conflict that all of us feel between faith and unbelief. And so that's really our theme these two days, uh, at least for my messages. It's, the, it's that battle that goes on within all of us between our faith which sometimes seems like a mustard seed or less, and our doubts, which sometimes seem like they're relentless. And there's a classic example of this in Mark 9. Verse 24 especially contains one of my favorite statements in all of Scripture because it touches on this doctrine of assurance. And I want to I introduce this to you by sharing with you some correspondence I got a couple of years ago from a man in the Middle East. He'd been listening to some of my sermons on the internet, and so he was writing to ask for my help about his doubts that he was having with his salvation. He was struggling with assurance, which is, by the way, a common struggle. I don't know of very many Christians who haven't waged some kind of battle over the issue of assurance within their own heart. And this guy was really going through, and it was really difficult for him, and I want to read to you a few excerpts from his emails without violating his anonymity. I wouldn't normally share private correspondence, but I asked and received his permission to read portions of what he wrote. And frankly, the questions he raises here are the very same questions a lot of Christians ask all the time. These emails actually are what they are, came to me in email form. They could be echoed by thousands upon thousands of Christians who struggle with the very same fears that assaulted this man's faith, here's what he wrote to me. His first email to me was a really simple question. He asks this, and I'm quoting directly, should I say, as of now, I believe I'll be in heaven, or I know I'll be in heaven? He said, I don't know if any believer has a right to say, I know for sure I'll never be like Demas. Demas, you know, the character in the New Testament who who, uh, Paul wrote and said, Demas forsook me because he fell in love with the present world. And so I wrote him back and referred him to 1 John 5.13, that familiar verse where John says, I write these things to you who believed in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. And so I told him, if you're a true believer, you can say, I know. God wants us to know. That is the exact language Scripture uses. And you know, when people are struggling with personal assurance of their salvation, a simple answer like that rarely satisfies their questions. And so it didn't surprise me when this guy wrote back and said this, quote, something in your message doesn't let me sigh contentedly. Can you definitely say that you know that you will not lose your faith within 10 years? And he went on to say, you know, it's one thing to be confident of your present state, but when it comes to final salvation, the the continuance of our faith across the years, he said, it seems to me that the Bible stresses faith and hope rather than definite knowledge. And I wrote him back and said, first of all, you're trying to make fine points and distinctions where Scripture doesn't make them. When 1 John 5.13, the verse I quoted to him the first time, says, we can know that we have eternal life, 
that does give us assurance of our final destiny. Eternal life, by definition, if it's eternal life, it can't be lost, by definition. It wouldn't be eternal life if a mere 10 years from now you could somehow lose it. And Plus, I said, I think you're too focused on yourself and what you may or may not do. What you need to be more concerned with is trusting Christ and what He has already done. That's the essence of faith. Faith is not faith in me, it's faith in Christ. And I said this, quote, this is what I wrote to him, Scripture commands us to trust in Him who is able to keep us from falling. If your trust in Christ is shaky, or if your life is lacking grace completely, then you might have grounds to examine yourself with regard to the quality of your faith, but it's folly to worry about ultimate failure just because you're weak and prone to wander. That's a given. Surely, I told him, you you must have realized your own spiritual bankruptcy when you came to faith in the first place. If your faith is so weak that you think you can somehow thwart the saving work of Christ, then you ought to be more concerned about what you think of Christ and less concerned about the weakness of your own flesh. I, I was getting a little straightforward with him there. But the plain truth is, we can't, he's right to be concerned about his own abilities, we cannot keep ourselves from falling. But we can certainly trust Christ when he says he's able to keep his own sheep so that none of them can be snatched out of his hand. And we ought to be able to trust God when he says he is able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. That's Jude 24. That's the kind of faith that gives assurance. And I said to him, quote, if you understand that your salvation is the work of Christ on your behalf and not something you're doing for yourself, you should know with absolute confidence that he will not botch the job. And he's not going to quit before he's finished with it. A lack of assurance, it just seems to destroy the joy and the liberty that ought to be the fruits of saving faith. That persistent kind of chronic uncertainty that plagues some people is, I think, spiritually devastating. It's a sin that needs to be mortified. In the worst cases, I think that kind of doubt may be an indication that a person's faith is defective. If you're you're utterly lacking any sense of assurance whatsoever, it could well be that what you think isn't real faith at all because it's not confidence in Christ. Now, I'm not saying that if you ever doubt, that's proof you're not saved. Virtually all Christians do struggle with doubts that assault their assurance from time to time, and new Christians especially are prone to uncertainty about their salvation. And you know what? Even the best of saints can be assaulted with fears and questions. It's one of the most difficult and yet one of the most common things every pastor deals with in the counseling room. And so, not surprising, not, not surprisingly, Scripture has a lot to say about assurance. You know, the whole epistle of 1 John is all about assurance of the dangers of false confidence and the peril of apostasy, and frankly, a, a really thorough study of 1 John would be like a graduate course in the doctrine of assurance. The book of Hebrews also has the theme of assurance running from start to finish. It's a, it's a theme that comes up Frankly, in most of the New Testament epistles, one of the major themes in Scripture, but this this evening what I want to do is explore 
this whole idea of assurance of our salvation by taking you to this single short verse in the Gospel of Mark, which is probably not the first text that would pop into most of your minds when somebody brings up the subject of assurance. But this, I chose this because this was the first verse that came to my mind when this fellow wrote me from the Middle East asking for help with his lack of assurance. Mark 9.24, and here Mark records that the father of a demon-possessed child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. That verse has always intrigued me. I think I know from firsthand experience exactly what that man was saying because I've struggled with the same conflict he describes here between faith and unbelief. And especially when I was a new Christian, I struggled with this. And I'll be honest with you, his prayer is still a plea my own heart echoes practically every day. Lord, I believe. Cure my unbelief. His honesty is remarkable. He confesses his unbelief to Christ as readily as he confesses his faith, which is the very picture of humble, godly sincerity. And yet, as you're going to see, this is not that... You know, people today talk about doubt as a sign of transparency. This is not that. This is not that maudlin notion of authenticity that seems to dominate today that drives some people practically to boast about their doubts. I'm really exercised about this because just this week I heard a sermon from a preacher. His sermon was titled, and it also reflected the message of the sermon. He said, embrace your doubts. It was a terrible sermon, and it's a terrible idea. And, uh, and I, I, I want to deal with that. What you have here in this text, and we're going to look at the context and everything, but what you have here is newborn faith seeking assurance. This is the first step towards maturity. And it's remarkable here. This man's very first confession of faith gives us a wonderfully abbreviated lesson in some of the key truths about the doctrine of assurance. And so, Let's look at the context, and then we'll focus on that key verse. Here's what's going on here. Jesus' ministry is nearing its climax. He had already withdrawn from Capernaum, that lakeside village that had for uh, many months been the base of Jesus' ministry, almost two years. He made Capernaum his, his center of operations. And then he entered a phase of itinerant ministry in some of the more remote parts around Galilee. But, as you see here in verse 33, he's still within reach of Capernaum, and since that was the hometown for most of his disciples, they would, I'm sure, return there commonly from time to time. Now, we're very close to the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He's about to make a trip to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles. He'll minister in and around Judea for some weeks, and then he, he would have conflicts with the religious leaders in Jerusalem that would force him over to Perea, which is on the other side of the Jordan, the area where John the Baptist used to minister in the wilderness. And Jesus would minister, Scripture says, to great multitudes there on the other side of the Jordan for several weeks. And then he makes his final journey to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And at the height of that feast, while the Passover lambs are being sacrificed, he would give his own life to be the literal fulfillment of what was pictured symbolically in all the Passover lambs that were ever sacrificed. 
And the event we're going to look at this evening occurs some six months or so prior to that final Passover when Jesus died. He's still in Galilee. He's ministering to multitudes who sought him out and followed him everywhere he went. He had left these multitudes to take Peter, James, and John to the top of a nearby mountain where he revealed his glory in the transfiguration. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three Gospels, all describe the transfiguration, and all three of them place the incident we're about to read about immediately after that great mountaintop experience. This is the day he comes down from the mountain when this happens. Luke 9.37, it happened on the next day, the day after the transfiguration. When they had come down from the mountain, that's Luke 9.37, so it gives us a definitive time stamp on this story. And if we assume that the mountain of transfiguration was one of those major mountains north of the Sea of Galilee, which I believe it was, then Jesus is going back to the region near the north shore of Galilee, which would be a full day's journey from the high mountains there. And on the way, Matthew and Mark both record that the three disciples asked Jesus about Elijah, and he spoke to them about John the Baptist. And so the four of them are talking about profound biblical issues as they descend from the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, they saw Moses and Elijah up there. And they're talking about all of this, talking about John the Baptist and his ministry, and I would love to have eavesdropped on that conversation. And they're in the middle of that conversation as they approach their destination, which is most likely Capernaum or somewhere very close to it, and they encounter the other nine apostles at the center of a frenzied mob, Mark 9.14. We came to the disciples, that's the nine he'd left behind. He saw a great multitude around them and scribes disputing with them. So as Jesus comes on this scene, someone in that multitude, someone in this crowd that was there around this argument that's going along, and it was probably several people at once, spot Jesus in the distance coming towards them and gives a shout, and immediately this mass of humanity begins to run towards Jesus. Verse 15, immediately, when they saw him, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him, and he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? I love the boldness of Jesus. He talks to the scribes. That amazes me here. These scoffing scribes had made themselves his sworn enemies already. They had opposed him at every turn for about two and a half years by now, but Jesus never backs down from them. He doesn't turn to the disciples, you know, and ask in a whisper, what's going on? He looks the scribes square in the eye, and he puts the question to them, what are you arguing about with my disciples? And that question seems to have stunned them into silence, which was unusual for these scribes. But notice, they're not the ones who answer. Verse 17, then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they could not. So what we have here is a severe case of demon possession with violent seizures, and that's not all. This man's son had suffered from this vile possession all his life. And worst of all, this was not a simple case of epileptic seizures. This was a malicious demon that seemed bent on doing harm to the child. You're about to see proof of that, but notice, 
Jesus is more concerned about the unbelief all around him than he is about this violent demon that's inhabiting this man's son. That's another surprising feature about this account. Jesus walks into this huge conflict between his disciples and some scribes. He's presented with an emergency of the utmost gravity. It's the violent affliction of a demon-possessed boy, and he's a little boy, and And he's helpless in the hands of this demon, and yet Jesus' first concern, and the main thing he's eager to remedy in this whole narrative, keep this in mind, that one thing he wants to remedy here is the unbelief that's embodied in those scribes. Unbelief had been institutionalized in their religion. Unbelief infected the hearts of everyone who followed the lead of these scribes onto the broad road that leads to destruction. And in fact, you think about this, you know it's true of all the evils in Galilee, including demons and disease and just about every social problem you can think of, unbelief was by far the most destructive and the most wicked and the most widespread problem of all. And Jesus knew that. He saw it clearly. And so, before He ever even turns His attention to the demon-possessed boy, in order to cast out that evil spirit... He rebukes the whole community's disbelief in some of the strongest languages you ever hear from the lips of Jesus. And this is significant as well. Christ's first words of reply are not a gentle word of encouragement to to this man whose boy was afflicted. It's not a word of comfort to the boy himself. It's not a rebuke to the demon. It's a sharp rebuke aimed not only at this man, but also at the whole culture of unbelief. Verse 19, he answered him. He's answering this man, the father of the boy, and he says, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? He's he's clearly frustrated here. And then he says, bring him to me. Now, don't think for a moment that Jesus was unconcerned about the demon or unsympathetic to this afflicted boy's welfare. He's about to cast out the demon, and he's going to heal the boy. But this rebuke signifies that as grossly evil as that demon was, and as hurtful as this lifelong affliction had been for this man's precious little boy, the state of unbelief among the people and the scribes was a far greater evil and a far more pressing problem than the demon. You ever think of unbelief in those terms? really puts the wickedness of unbelief in perspective, doesn't it? And I want you to hang on to that thought because it's a hugely important truth. And it really embodies the chief lesson of this whole narrative. Unbelief is supremely wicked. To distrust the Word of God or or to doubt the power of Christ, is not some minor infraction that has no practical consequence. Doubt is not a plaything that you can wear as a badge of transparency. Unbelief is the seed from which every other crime against the righteousness of God springs. And therefore, we should never think of any form of unbelief as a small transgression. And that's why Jesus rebukes the people's skepticism before He rebukes this demon. This is a monstrous demon, and yet Jesus' first and harshest rebuke is against the unbelief of all these people. And and that says volumes about the gross 
evils of doubt and disbelief. Verse 20, then they brought him to him. And when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed him, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. And so he, Jesus, asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often, often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This is a sad story, isn't it? I mean, it makes me sad as a father and a grandfather to think of the plight of this child and his father. This kid had suffered like this all his life. And he seems to be, I said he's young, seems to be an early adolescent at this point. I don't think he's a teenager yet. He's just entering that because the father speaks of his childhood as something past, and yet he's still in the father's care. And then verse 24 refers to him as a child. And so I gather that this boy is in that realm where the end of childhood meets the dawn of adulthood. That's how it went in the Hebrew culture. You went from being a child to being an adult. They didn't have a concept that we have of adolescence. But this is a young adolescent. The Hebrews didn't have that concept, but I'll refer to him as a boy because that covers all the possibility, and that's how the text refers to him. So the violence of this boy's seizures is remarkable and frightening. As soon as the demon is brought into the presence of Jesus, the torment is immediately unleashed. I read you the New King James Version, which says, when he saw him, the spirit convulsed him. The the Greek expression is a strong one. It literally means, having seen Jesus, immediately the spirit tore him back and forth. He foams at the mouth. He writhes on the ground. Verse 18 says, These fits also made the boy gnash his teeth, which means he ground his teeth with such force you could hear it. He's in this seizure and helpless under the cruel power of this demon. And I love the calmness of Jesus, even in the face of this violent evil. You know, it starts out looking like maybe he's not that concerned because he rebukes the crowd and ignores the demon, and, and, and now even in the midst of this fit, Jesus is calm. He looks up while the boy is still wallowing uncontrollably in the dust, and he asks the father, how long has the boy been afflicted like this? He's very clinical about it in a, in a way, but it just shows his control. And so the father adds some terrifying details. Verse 22, often, he says, this demon has tried to drown or burn the boy. It's been happening to him from childhood. Doesn't it just tear your heart out for the father and the son? The thought of a little boy so afflicted by such a powerful demon from the time he was a toddler. And this man had no doubt tried everything to help his son. He's been with him a long time. And the father hasn't given up on him or abandoned the child. He's heartbroken over this. And now he's brought him to this place where he believed Jesus was going to be. And he'd undoubtedly heard the stories how Jesus could heal any disease. He could cast out any demon. Who knows how far this man had come. If you were in his place, you would have been willing to go any distance to get help for your son. But he happens to arrive just when Jesus had withdrawn to the mountain with three of his inner circle disciples, 
You just think about, put yourself in this guy's place. So much trouble in his life already. And when he gets there, he finds out he has chosen the one day when Jesus is gone. And so now his best hope is the nine remaining disciples whom Jesus had given power to cast out demons, but even they couldn't seem to help in this case. Verse 18, I spoke to your disciples that they should cast it out, but they couldn't. So his hopes are shattered. Whatever faith, whatever hope he had come to this place with had already been demolished. This must have been one of the most despondent days of his incredibly difficult life. And now when Jesus finally arrives, Jesus' very first words to this guy are a rebuke for his unbelief. And furthermore, Jesus is about to chide him once more for his faithlessness. Look again at the end of verse 21, and pay attention to what this man is saying. He says to Jesus, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. It's a, it's a heartbroken, heartfelt plea. If you can do anything, help us. And Jesus echoes his words right back to him. If you can. Now, some versions, the, in fact, I think it's the King James and the New King James have, if you can believe, but the word believe is not in, in the best Greek manuscripts, and I think the best translations of that verse are what you find in most of the other modern translations. It makes the best sense of this story. Jesus simply repeats this man's words back to him with a tone of astonishment. And so, this guy says, if you can do anything, help us. And Jesus says, if you can? Like, are you doubting? What do you mean, if? And then notice what Jesus says. All things are possible to him who believes. It's clear. This is a rebuke, and the guy picks up on it right away. And he instantly makes this tearful confession. And this is the key verse we want to look at, verse 24. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, all of that had happened very quickly because lots of people from that multitude where they were arguing were still running from the place where that dispute was taking place to where they met Jesus. It's within sight, maybe two football fields away, something like that is what I envisioned. They'd seen him in the distance. They started running. People are still running towards Jesus. Verse 25, when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. And then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly, and came out of him. That's... That's where we're going to stop with the story because it's a happy ending. The demon goes. The kid is delivered. The father got what he sought. And even though the narrative goes on for a few more verses, that's enough to give you the context of the verse I want to focus on with you, and that's verse 24, specifically the phrase, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Here is a perfect expression of the tension every one of us struggles with. It's a conflict between our faith and our unbelief. It's a contest between assurance and doubt. This man has just met Jesus, and he makes this simple, conflicted confession of faith. But he, he perfectly and, and ingeniously, very simply, summarizes the whole Christian doctrine of assurance in all its essential elements. 
There's the ground of our assurance, and that's Jesus Himself expressed in the address of this comment, Lord. There's the root of our assurance, faith. You see that in the words, I believe, is confession of faith. And there's the means of our assurance, grace, which is reflected in this man's plea, help my unbelief. And I want to look at each of those elements with you individually, and I think this will give us a firmer grasp on the doctrine of assurance. And and my prayer is it will encourage those of you who may be struggling to lay hold of settled assurance and be forewarned this may also upset the overconfidence of some people who've seared their consciences or, or deadened their own hearts with a presumptuous false assurance. Here are the three elements of assurance that we're going to talk about. The ground of assurance, the root of assurance, and the means of assurance. And we'll start with the ground of assurance. As I said, it's reflected in His address. Lord, Jesus Himself is the ground of true assurance. Here is perhaps the number one truth about the doctrine of assurance. This trips up and confuses more people than any other point. Assurance is not gained by looking inward at my own heart or outward at my works, hoping that I'm going to find myself good enough and righteous enough or consistent enough that I can just rest easy. If that's what you're looking for, Assurance within yourself, you'll never find it. Because true assurance is grounded in Christ and what He has done for us. It's not in me and what I've done for Him. The gospel isn't about me and what I've done for Him. It's about Him and what He's done for me. And that's a simple point that lots of people misunderstand. The object of our faith is Christ, and therefore the only ground of our assurance is Christ. Which is not to suggest, by the way, that what you do or don't do is irrelevant to the question of assurance. There are some people who teach that, you know, the antinomians, who teach that faith in Christ is bare assent to the truth about Him, so that if you intellectually accept certain points of doctrine, you can rest in an easy assurance even if your life is utterly devoid of any of the fruits of faith. That's a lie, according to Scripture, and that's why First John makes... Our behavior, one of the tests of whether our faith is genuine or not. If your life is completely devoid of any love for Christ, if you're lacking any desire for righteousness, or if any real interest in spiritual things totally escapes you, if you are barren of any of the fruit of the Spirit, then whatever assurance you think you have is a lie. Because you're not a true Christian at all if Christ has never made any difference in your life. It's as simple as that. But that is not to suggest you should ground your assurance in your own good works, because I don't care who you are. If you examine your good works, your best works, to see how you measure up to the standard of perfect Christ-likeness, you're going to find you fall far short. If you think your own works are where you can find the confidence to overcome your doubt or, or to walk boldly into the throne of grace then you're sadly mistaken because you and I will never in this life be good enough to find any assurance in our own works, our own character even. The true and only ground of assurance is the absolute perfection of what Christ has done for us. And and I stress this all the time. Faith in Christ, complete trust 
in His work on our behalf is the only instrument of justification. If you think anything you can do might add to the righteousness of Christ in order to gain you a right standing before God, if you think some work or ritual or gift of alms is the means by which you gain justification, then you haven't yet come to grips with the most basic truth of the gospel, and what you need is not assurance, you need salvation. Remember, that was the, was the issue of the Judaizers in, in Galatia, in the Galatians churches. They were, they were teaching that baptism is the instrument of justification. There's a work you must do. And Paul condemned them in the strongest possible language and said, that's not even Christianity. They weren't far off on most of the doctrines, but they got that point wrong, and that's a point you can't get wrong. If your faith is real, it will make a difference in your life, because authentic saving faith is a robust, dynamic, personal belief. Personal in the sense that it lays hold of Christ, the person. It doesn't merely give intellectual assent to some points of doctrine. We're not saved by theorizing that the doctrines of grace are true. We are saved by trusting wholeheartedly in the God of grace, which is not to suggest that sound doctrine is optional. Faith always accepts the truth of God, but it goes further than that is what I'm saying. Its focus its main focus is the person and the work of Christ. Trust in Him, reliance on His provision, surrender to His Lordship. Those are all important elements of true faith. That's how faith expresses itself. And this man is clearly being drawn to that kind of personal faith and trust in Christ. It's not likely that this guy was any kind of expert in doctrine. His faith is obviously a a kind of rudimentary belief, but it's centered solidly on the right object. Previous to this, he had entrusted his son's case to the ministry of nine disciples, and they failed miserably. And yet, there was something in him, a glimmer of the grace of God that compelled him to look beyond the failure of those nine disciples and maintain some vestige of hope in Christ. So he took his case to Christ, which is the right thing to do. According to most manuscripts, the man called Jesus Lord. He addresses him that way. It's a title of deep respect. He clearly had listened to what Jesus said because he's responding to the main point Jesus is attempting to make to him. Just think about that. Of all the people in this multitude, this guy probably had more reason than anybody to be distracted and inattentive. His son is convulsing on the ground in the dust at Jesus' feet while Jesus is rebuking the unbelief of Israel. You'd think this guy would be distracted from the point Jesus is trying to make, but he wasn't. Listen to what Spurgeon says about this. Spurgeon said, it's very noticeable that the man doesn't say, Lord, I believe, help my child. Nor does he say, Lord, I believe, now you cast the devil out of my boy. Not at all. Spurgeon says, he clearly sees that his own unbelief was even harder to overcome than the devil. And that to heal him of his spiritual disease was a more urgent work, a more urgent need, than even to heal his child of the sad malady under which he labored. That's a great point, isn't it? Here's a guy 
who is properly focused. And even though by his own admission, his faith is imperfect, he's struggling with doubt, he lays hold of the only proper object of faith, Christ himself. And that was the only solid foundation on which to ground assurance. Now, I know people, my Middle Eastern friend who I quoted at the beginning, is a classic example. People who become so obsessed with the imperfections of their own faith and the shortcomings of their own obedience that they take their eyes off Christ. And it's no wonder someone like that lacks assurance. Christ Himself is the only proper ground of assurance. Look to Him if you lack assurance. Here's the second element of assurance I see in this, verse 24. It's the root of assurance. You see it in the words, I believe, His confession of faith. This is the root of assurance, faith. His faith, weak and elementary though it was, is really impressive on several levels. I've already pointed out how remarkable it is that he's even paying attention to what Jesus is saying while his son is in the throes of this violent demonic fit writhing on the ground foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth. The boy is literally dispossessed of both mind and body by this powerful demon that is torturing him in the father's view. But the father is so absolutely desperate by now, and that that kind of desperation has a way of forcing us to, to focus on and confront what otherwise we might be unwilling to face. Verse 23, Jesus repeats this phrase from the man's own words as if to underscore that there is unbelief inherent even in his appeal to Christ. If, if you can, Jesus is saying, you doubt my power? Well, I'm not too sure about your faith because all things are possible to them, him who believes. And the man gets the point. I think he felt that rebuke and he was humbled by it. And that explains why his confession of faith instantly and automatically contains a confession of unbelief as well. He had only a moment for self-examination before he replies to Jesus, but it is clear from this reply that he is reflecting deeply on what Jesus is saying to him. Lord, I believe, he says. That's a triumphant statement. And it absolutely defies a lifetime of disappointment and heartache. This man's son had suffered this most excruciating kind of demonic bondage almost constantly from the time of his childhood. Who wouldn't give up in despair on that? This boy had no doubt been injured when the demon threw him in the fire. He faced the threat of death every time he came within reach of any body of water deep enough to drown in. If one of your children was afflicted like this, you would never let that child out of your sight. And that's a burden. And so this was a constant, unending source of grief and stress for the father. And no one had ever been able to help his boy in the least. And even nine of Jesus' disciples couldn't do anything for him. And Jesus' words so far seemed more calculated to sting the man than to encourage him. If you were standing there watching this exchange, any rational person might fully understand if this man simply decided that, you know, I've already exhausted my last resort, give up hope and let's walk away. 
This guy found a glimmer of promise even in Jesus' gentle scolding. All things are possible to him who believes. And he, he lays hold of that. In that moment, this man dares to hope against hope. And he makes this very simple profession of faith. And this is the definition of mustard seed faith. Immediately, the father of the child cries out and says, With tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Now, depending on what version you're reading, the text may or may not mention the tears. Most of the Greek manuscripts include that phrase, with tears, but it's not in the earliest manuscripts. But the pathos is there even without the tears, and it proves that this confession of faith came from the man's heart. He cried out, meaning he exclaimed with a very vocal cry, some kind of moan or shout or outburst of emotion, not a word, but an exclamation that just a groan. That was his immediate response. And then he follows that exclamation, that just outburst of passion with these words, Lord, I believe. Now remember, just moments before, this massive crowd had been gathered around the scribes who, verse 14, were disputing with the disciples. There's a theological debate going on here in the midst of this demon-possessed boy. Uh, there are, the scribes are arguing with the disciples. They're carrying on this heated public debate, no doubt deliberately in public, because they want desperately to discredit Jesus, and they think they can do this by humiliating His disciples. And the scribes are clearly here milking the passions of the crowd for their own advantage. The disciples had been unable to help the boy. And so the crowd probably wouldn't be inclined to be on their side and you know these scribes, these are very powerful religious leaders who were hostile to Jesus. They're hostile also to His disciples. They're hostile to everyone who followed Christ instead of following them. And they were winning this argument until Jesus showed up and attention got diverted by the sudden demonic attack against the boy. And so, there is no rational reason for this man to declare right out loud that he trusted Christ. And yet, he makes this confession boldly, right in the faces of those sneering scribes. I love this. Because it reminds me what a remarkable thing faith is. In fact, I'm reminded by this, that genuine faith is a gift of God. It is a miracle. It must be, because... It's completely contrary to human nature. Romans 8, verses 7 and 8 says that in its fallen state, the, the, the fallen human heart, the carnal mind, is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Faith in the true God and humility under the weight of God's truth is the most unnatural thing in the world for a sinful human being. Faith doesn't come to anybody naturally. It's a miracle. And in this man's case, particularly, he's hoping against hope. He is trusting Christ in the aftermath of a lifetime of disappointed hopes on a day that so far had proved to be the darkest, lowest point in that long valley of shadows that his entire life had become. And that's not all. His faith also teaches us some great lessons about the simplicity of faith. I said this is the perfect picture of mustard seed faith. 
His belief at this point could hardly have been more than the most rudimentary kind of trust in Jesus. He wasn't wasn't going to give you a a lecture on the hypostatic union, you know, or the two natures of Christ. He didn't know much, but he trusted Jesus. Now, authentic faith never takes a deliberately stubborn stance against the truth. But there are lots of people, I believe, who are ushered into the kingdom through this sort of mustard seed faith. They don't have a very full grasp of the truth. Just the basics of the gospel. They they lack understanding, and it's ignorance, not unbelief, but it's only a temporary ignorance. Because when confronted with the truth, these are sheep who will recognize the shepherd's voice, and they follow him. So we're not talking about people who reject the truth, but there are people who come to Christ in ignorance, who don't understand all the truth. And this is the point. An advanced knowledge of theology is not a prerequisite to faith. The power of saving faith does not lie in how much or how well you know doctrine. The vitality of saving faith is not proved by showing off how many good works you've done. But we are fully justified, every one of us, at the first glimmer of faith when we lay hold of Christ. That's when our justification is complete, not sometime later when faith brings us to that point of perfect sanctification. But faith, saving faith, is a simple thing, so simple that Jesus compared it to childlike trust. And in fact, just one chapter after this, Mark 10, verse 15, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. In other words, your faith must be a kind of childlike trust. And this man's embryonic faith embodies that quality of childlikeness. You see this a lot in Scripture. You know, very few of the most dramatic conversions in Scripture involved trained theologians like Saul of Tarsus. But Scripture often shows us the simplest kind of faith, the thief on the cross, the publican who could only smite his breast and cry out to God for mercy, the blind man who in the first stage of his healing said other men look to him like trees walking. God draws us to him as newborn babes squealing for milk, not grown-up food. But he doesn't let us stay that way, and we're not supposed to stay that way. We need to grow in faith, and grow in knowledge, and grow in assurance and understanding. And that's the whole point of the third element of the doctrine of assurance we see in this man's exclamation, and I will wrap this up as quickly as possible. Number three, the means of assurance. And I said the means of assurance is grace, God's grace, and that's reflected in his plea, Lord, you help my unbelief. He's seeking God's help to rid him of his doubts. And that's an appropriate thing to do. If faith is a gift of God, and we're saved by grace, then it's grace we need to overcome our doubts. Now let me say, I believe there is an element of assurance that's inherent in saving faith. In fact, one of the classic debates of post-Reformation theology deals with this very question. Is assurance the essence of faith? In other words, are faith and assurance essentially the same thing? Does the very epitome of saving faith lie in the, in, the, in the knowledge that I myself am actually saved? Is that what saving faith consists of? And some will try to tell you, yes, that assurance is the defining quality of saving faith. 
They would say, until you have a full, settled assurance that you are saved, then you probably aren't. And I think that's a horribly wrong view. And one of the major reasons I think it's a wrong view is the text we're studying this evening. This guy didn't have an unshakable assurance. His faith was weak. It was a mere mustard seed, and he confessed that. And for reasons we don't have time to go into tonight, the view that equates faith and assurance tends to lead to antinomianism, that sort of intellectual trust only. Assurance and faith are not the same thing, but I do believe that there's a germ of assurance, sometimes just the weakest, smallest glimmer of assurance in true faith, and that's because the object of saving faith is Christ, and as we saw in point one, He's also the ground of true assurance. So if you've laid hold of the object of saving faith, you've laid hold of the ground of your assurance. But it is a reality that true faith, even the best faith, can sometimes be shaken temporarily by doubt. And in fact, I think, based on this text, it's fair to say that as long as we are in this world, in our unglorified state, faith generally, usually coexists with the remnants of unbelief in our hearts and our minds, and that is to a very large degree the reason why we struggle in our pursuit of sanctification, in our quest for assurance, in our striving to mortify the deeds of the flesh. It's the the remnant of doubt in there that trips us up. And this is the paradoxical nature of faith. The moment we first place our trust in Jesus Christ, we immediately begin to discover our own unbelief and wretchedness. There's no such thing as a true believer who hasn't experienced that phenomenon. If if your faith hasn't utterly humbled you like that, then you really need to examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. Unbelief fights against our newfound faith and sometimes threatens to swallow it up, what I love about Mark 9.24 is that it perfectly expresses that tension in an absolute economy of words. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. This is an amazingly honest plea. This this is true authenticity, but it's not that sort of artificial postmodern transparency you hear about today from people who glorify their doubts as if doubt were a virtue. It's not people who think there's some kind of glory in chronic skepticism. Have you noticed that? People today expend an extraordinary amount of energy trying to justify their doubts. I'm out of time, so I'm going to close with this. Unbelief is a a dreadful thing, and it's a grievous transgression. It is not to be pampered or cultivated. And let me quote Spurgeon one more time. He says this, Too many people in the church of God regard unbelief as if it were a calamity that commands sympathy rather than a fault demanding censure as well. Doubts are among the worst enemies of your souls. Don't entertain them. Don't treat them as though they were poor, forlorn travelers to be hospitably entertained. They are rogues and vagabonds to be chased from your door. Fight them. Slay them. Pray God to help you kill them and bury them, and don't even leave a bone or a piece of a bone of a doubt above the ground. Spurgeon could really get prosaic, couldn't he? 
He said, doubting and unbelief are always to be abhorred and to be confessed with tears as sins before God. We need pardon for doubting as much as for blasphemy. We ought no more to excuse doubts than lies, for to doubt God slanders him and makes him a liar. And this man in Mark 9 was, notice, he is grieved and dismayed at the discovery of his own unbelief. And that's fitting. In fact, the, you hear a, a kind of sense of alarm in his plea, don't you? That is his faith speaking against his unbelief. Some people think assurance of salvation, you know, is inherently presumptuous. You're being too bold if you profess assurance. That is, in fact, the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. Rome anathematizes anyone who claims to be fully justified and fully assured of salvation. But Scripture teaches the opposite. 1 John 5.13, you can know that you have eternal life. Assurance is not only the privilege of every believer in Christ, it's our duty. And think about this. It is a thousand times more presumptuous to doubt God's Word than it is to believe it. I do believe it. May the Lord cure our unbelief. Let's pray. Lord, we do confess our weakness. Along with this man, we echo his plea. Help our unbelief. Cure us of it. Drive it away and give us the grace to mortify it that we might trust fully in Christ for His glory. And in His name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit Mission Road Bible Church dot com.